This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. My guest today is Andrea Lavalure Purvis, artist and art business consultant. We talk about a recent project she completed in downtown Waco, the parts of the town most in need of public art, and ways creatives can turn their hobby into a business. But first, let's hear what's happening in housing. Austin Hooper is our residential real estate expert, and I had to have you come on this month because, of course, we've seen in the news that the famed Cottonland Castle that Chip and Joanna Gaines have been redeveloping is now hitting the market, but it's not just for sale. It's actually for auction. This is kind of a unique setup in the real estate world. Absolutely, and great to be back. Thanks for having me back, Austin. My experience with auctions has only ever been, uh, at least in the real estate world, has been with foreclosure properties. That's where in the past we've seen auction being used as a pretty typical vehicle. It's also somewhat common in the luxury arena, which this one would certainly fit that bill. We just haven't had that in Waco. Uh, So yeah, first time I'm seeing something like this in the Waco market for a property like this. I remember a few years ago when Dr. Nancy Grayson, who at then time owned Lula Jane's on Elm Avenue, she was doing some development herself in that East Riverside neighborhood and made three or four different cottages, but she also put those up for auction rather than listing them with a traditional realtor. What are the benefits of having an auction setting when you are trying to get off a piece of property? I got to say, it's not too dissimilar from just the market that we've experienced, I'd say, from 2020 through 2022, where if you were priced right, pretty much any house that was desirable or in the move-in ready condition was going for over-asking price with multiple offers. You kind of find yourself in an auction format that way. The only difference there is that it's a you got one-time shot at it. It's not necessarily a, I'll do this, I'll go 5000 higher, I'll go 10000 higher. So with this auction format, you know, I, I think it, with a property like this especially, it's really hard to put a value on it because the potential uses are so vast. And it's also, for a property like this, the potential uses are somewhat limiting due to the fact that it is zoned R1B, very restrictive zoning, in a neighborhood that is famous for being very restrictive on, uh, not to get in the weeds too much, on special permits and uh, things you have to go through the city to operate in certain uses. But Castle Heights neighbors are notorious for speaking up when those special permits come across the docket. So probably not Waco's next great Airbnb, but certainly a really unique category of home for someone who might be looking to come in here. I know the the range can be wide. Are you brave enough to venture a guess about what the winning bid comes in at? I mean, it's right now it's sitting at uh, I think one around one point one million, uh, which I know is far less than what they have in it. You know, I was thinking back to the days of eBay when we were bidding on you know records or iPods or whatever, and the item would sit there for a few days or a week, and then. Right in the last 30 minutes, you'd start to see that number, bing, 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 going up. So I'm, I'm curious to see if that happens with something like this. There hasn't been a ton of activity on it up to this point, but I'd, I'd venture to guess that we'll see a lot of activity in the final 24 hours. Austin, one reason I love having you on this show is that you can take these larger macro trends and can define them for what's happening in Waco and how does it apply to us, if at all. So the sale of this Magnolia home. 
maybe that doesn't have a ton of impact on the pricing that a Wacoan could get when they're going to go lease their normal home or sell their normal home. But I did see something in the Washington Post this month that was saying that more new apartments are under construction today than any time in the past 50 years in the country. Are we seeing more of this demand in the Waco area for apartment living? Certainly, we've had a issue with low inventory, both on the purchasing side and also on the rental side. I think what we're seeing nationally is that catch up to the slowdown that happened during the pandemic. Uh, the response to that, we're, we're finally seeing, you know, it's a pretty long off-ramp for something like this. In Waco, particularly, we're seeing more single-family construction, not as many large apartment buildings, which I think the article alluded to. That's not really happening here in Waco as much, but rental prices have ticked down a little bit. I think that's really just a response to the massive explosion that happened in the last few years. It's kind of that elastic pricing. We're, we're seeing you know, that, that massive demand decrease just as things settle down a bit. Austin Hooper is our residential real estate expert coming from AG Real Estate. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Austin Hooper for sharing your real estate knowledge. And now let's hear from CJ Jackson with the Business Review. Better judgment, better results. I'm CJ Jackson, and this is the Business Review. The key to good business results is making better decisions. And better decisions come from better judgment, according to Scott Motts, CEO of Profound Performance. Motts shares six elements that contribute to better business results. So often we leave decision-making to the last minute to patterns and we assume that we're born with the judgment that we have and we don't understand that you can actually improve your business judgment. The first element is to listen carefully and be critical of everything you read. Pay attention to what's said and not said, what's written and not written. Spotting discrepancies and inconsistencies in the data. Second, you have to seek to contradict your opinion, not validate it. You want to find people that are going to contradict your opinion. The third element is to be aware of the pitfall of familiarity. Motz says that habits and complacency should not replace curiosity and creativity. The fourth element of developing good business judgment is to know your biases and to stop them cold. The fifth element is to ask what's the better third option. So often we're presented with two choices. One is the recommendation that the presenter really wants us to follow. And then the second one usually is a foil, one filled, filled with problems so that it'll make the first one look better. The sixth way to develop your business judgment is to just ask how executable is the strategy or the idea that I'm faced with here. Good judgment is one of the most important skills that you can have in business and in life. Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University. The Business Review with C.J. Jackson can be heard Thursdays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered on Waco Public Radio. I'm now joined in studio by Andrea Lavalor purvis Andrea is a designer and art business coach who helps people make money from their art by thinking like entrepreneurs and acting like marketers. That's right. Welcome to the program. How did you end up in Waco? <laughs> um, that's kind of a fun story. Um, I literally was living in Spain, uh, Barcelona, during COVID. And I came to the States for a wedding. 
and decided that it was the right time to move back to the States. I'd lived here as an adult for a number of years, um, but grew up in Europe and uh, was in Dallas for a business trip and decided Texas would be the place I would buy a home and picked a place on the map. (laughs) It was that simple. I came down for a weekend, looked at a few houses, made an offer, and flew back to Spain, and I had a house. So I had to come back a month later to sign paperwork. What were you missing about the American experience Mm -hmm. in particular? Um, Well, I wanted to buy a home, and that was a big deciding factor to come back. Uh, I certainly could have done that in Spain, but as as an expat, uh, is a little bit more complicated. Uh, COVID was very difficult there also. And um, so I knew that it would be a lot easier uh, to come back here and own a home for many different reasons. So And has it and been within, as easy as you planned? <laughs> yes. Um, yes and no. I mean, I'm like first-time homeowner. I, I'm probably not doing certain things. <laughs> it's like there is no guide. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm super enjoying it. I have uh, space for my my work, my studio work. Uh, I have a 400 square foot studio at home. I have a big garden. I have a dog, and I get to entertain people. So yes, it's lovely. I get to paint all the walls the colors I like. <laughs> How would you define the term creative entrepreneurship? You have Mm -hmm. this fabulous art business talk podcast, Mm -hmm. um, and you have on people from different professions in the art world, but I've heard you mention this term, creative entrepreneurship. What does Mm -hmm. that mean? Yes. So it's really anybody who has this creative skill and pursues it as a business. Um, And so that could mean you're a designer, an illustrator, a a visual artist, a sculptor, uh, and certainly even on the non-visual artistic side, like musicians and people in the music space, in the film space, all of us who are creative makers of things are ultimately creative entrepreneurs when we pursue that as a a form of making our our income. What is something that many creatives who might not think of themselves as entrepreneurs are getting wrong? Um, The fact that they are entrepreneurs (laughs) and that if you want to make a a living full time from your work that you make, whatever work you make, that you do need to apply basic business principles, basic marketing principles. You need to be consistent. You need to show your work. You need to look for your leads, your sales, and all of the whole thing, especially if you're working by yourself. And if you're fortunate enough to have a team that can, where you can offload some of these things that a lot of creatives find um, gross or unfun, uh, then that's wonderful. But until you get to that place, you have to do all those things by yourself. Are there any tools you commonly are suggesting to clients of yours, creatives, like, mm-hmm. hey, this is the accounting software that's best for artists, mm-hmm. or do XYZ, set your business up as an LLC? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not a, a lawyer or a tax person by any means, but I can share from my personal experience. So, yes, I do own an LLC. I think once you get to a place where you're, where you're doing your work full time and you own property or other things, you have a family potentially, having an LLC or some kind of a business structure is certainly something that can help protect your personal assets. But for 15 years, I ran my creative business as a sole proprietor. Yes. The last 15 years... How has your clientele changed? Do you feel like artists today in general are 
more well-versed and capable of treating their art like business, or is the exact same issues you're running into a decade plus ago? Well, um, yes and no. Now there's just so much access. There's so many wonderful things that are actually being made specifically for, for creatives. Some things are made specifically for the art world, like in terms of inventory management, tools that we use in, in, let's say, a gallery space that has all of your CRM sales, inventory, uh, communications, all of those activities live within one tool now. But there's often still a component missing, like the web integration piece or and some some tools are certainly bringing in the, the broader aspect of this is a complete set of tools that a visual artist might need in the business world. But I absolutely recommend my favorite tools um, just because I've been working with them for many years. And so, uh, yeah, makes sense, right? What are your resources? Are there podcasts, books, websites that you use to stay on top of? All the things. I love podcasts. I have my own podcast and I love listening. So Art Biz Talk is my podcast um, where we interview artists about how they built their creative business. And we talk to fairly new artists who people have made multiple six figures and even seven figures in their business. So we want to show all aspects. Hopefully it's inspirational. There's um, a learned lesson there somewhere. So I'm I'm constantly reading I'm on YouTube a lot. I, I live in the, like, I gather a lot of information from the art world, quote unquote, which is quite different than uh, a lot of the artists that I end up working with professionally are independent artists. So they're, they may not be gallery represented. They might want to go into galleries and have a show here and there, but their primary strategy is not necessarily to be in one of the top five or 10 galleries, um, which is a whole other a world, to be honest, and a lot more difficult to get into. Currently, there are major protests happening in New York and in L.A. of actors and screenwriters who are afraid of having their roles displaced by artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that some of this is burbled up in the art community as well. Mm -hmm. There are people using these creative AI programs to mm -hmm. make generative art, but also probably a lot of artists who are more tactile and feeling scared about this upcoming AI boom in mm -hmm. art. Where do you fall on this? Uh, so this is interesting because um, I'm actually working with an artist who is pursuing the AI route, but there is um, it's a tool just like um, as, as a sculptor, I would use a grinder or I use it. Let's use this example. I use a, a plasma cutter to cut out some shapes. It's a tool. I use a computer program to tell it what to do, and then it produces the result to me faster and cleaner. So if you uh, look at AI as the same kind of um, parallel, you, you have to make a input, and then you get a result. And um, there is no comparison of a art compared to fine art. It is not an original. It can be unique. Um, but it is not an original work like a fine art piece is a is an original work. And why would you say it's not an original work? Because, because it's used the same code? Because and... it's, it's essentially um, reusing aspects of other creations previously made and like pulling things together to make something. So in the art world right now, it's defined as not an original, but a unique piece. I, I wonder... Any artist who's going to sit down at a canvas is going to be putting to that canvas 
the images and thoughts that they've had of different artwork that they've interacted with over their life. How is that different from the AI system? Yeah, that's a great question because, quite frankly, there's a lot of artists who copy photographs. So who's the original composer there, right? Um, I, I personally don't love the idea of artists who are painters to recreate exactly what a photograph is because that photograph was created by a photographer who also is an artist. Um, if they could bring something unique to that artwork and maybe uh, just change something about it that makes it their own, sure. But that, that's a fine line to me. And a lot of people are, are selling um, canvas-made um, artworks that they painted, but they're of celebrities or famous uh, things and places. And sometimes um, that can be an easy moneymaker. To me, that's a fine line. I wonder how you feel about pop art in general and artists like Andy Warhol or more contemporarily the artist Cause, you know, using these iconic images of The Simpsons but making it his own Cause style. Does that feel a little schlocky, I guess? <laughs> so you know how we talked about artists need to think like entrepreneurs and act like marketers? These are fantastic examples of, of artists who were really focused like um, even Damien Hirst is one of those people, or Jeff Koons. These guys are business people and entrepreneurs, and their craft is art. They have teams. They, um, they've really produced uh, the work from a concept to then a final product. And in the, the quote-unquote art world, that is also, you know, <laughs> it's not always loved um, when you have a super commercial approach. Um, when I work with my, my clients, I always present the idea of let's look at what suite of art products make sense for your type of work because there is no one size fits all. Um, and what, what can we let um, your art be available on, be more affordable for in a limited edition sense um, and something that doesn't look cheap? Because art is a luxury product, but I do believe in, in everybody having access to view art and buy art. So it's really just everyone should recognize that this piece is a great work of art. Some people can afford the original. Other people can afford to print it out on Microsoft <laughs> Word and put it on their <laughs> office site. Well, ideally, that, that is a no-no either, but you can buy it of an affordable print. <laughs> sure. <laughs> You're hearing from Andrea Lavalor Purvis. You're hearing from Andrea Lavalor Purvis. She is a designer and art business coach based here in Waco, Texas, after a long stint over in Europe. Mm -hmm. I recently read in The New Yorker an article about Larry Gagosian. Mm -hmm. Am I pronouncing his name right? Yes. Okay, cool. So Larry Gagosian uh, has a string of very high-profile galleries, New York, Athens, London, etc. Mm -hmm. Something that struck me in reading this is that He's been so useful for helping popularize a lot of artists like Jean-Michel Jean Basquiat back in the 80s in New York. He's one of the first people credited with finding him. But what I didn't realize is that once Basquiat sells that painting to Gagosian and Gagosian puts it in his gallery, well, one of Gagosian's rich clients buys that. And then when that client starts to have some issues, then he needs to sell it. Well, probably sells it back to Gagosian. Gagosian sells it to another rich client, et cetera. In the meantime, 
Basquiat only got that initial money. Mm -hmm. And this idea of a secondary art market is anathema to me as someone who feels like you should be rewarded Absolutely. the more people who yeah. appreciate your work. And yes. to me, that the, the whole c coming of artificial intelligence is quite scary. But I do think that the ability to track ownership and mm -hmm. potentially have the artist still retain ownership of mm -hmm. that original piece mm -hmm. is something that, at least to me as an outsider, could be really transformative for artists. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am with you on that. What I dislike about the primary art market, which is that initial sale from the artist studio to the first purchase, um, that the artist doesn't receive residual or licensing royalties over time. Now, there are some tools coming to market that are allowing for that, uh, where there's essentially the provenance is tracked and there is a royalty payout to the artist as the piece sells. But when we're looking at like the Gagosians of the art world, which is like, you know, one of the top galleries in the world, I'm, they're not implementing those types of systems yet. And I hope that the galleries do start doing that and add transparency. But there's still a lot of gatekeeping and who's allowed to own what piece when it comes to the secondary market. There's, um, there's certain people families and corporations that own a majority of the Picassos of the world or the majority of name any big artist that's selling for multi-million dollars and then it becomes a blue chip investment. This is no longer the average, like I could never buy a Picasso um, because I'm not in the right circle to even buy. And to me, that's wrong. Anybody who has the financial means and the desire to own a piece of work should have the ability to buy it. If I had uh, $500 million right now and I could go buy that one piece that I loved, it would probably be very difficult for me to actually acquire it because I'm not in the don't have the right relationships or I don't own enough other pieces that would allow me access to go buy. That to me is not a great way to um, to uh, experience the art world. And so um, I hope that more transparency is introduced into the big galleries, also the museums, and uh, certainly as an independent artist or if you're working with a smaller gallery and you um, embrace technology, you could start selling your work and indexing your work through these tools um, that allow you to uh, earn royalties uh, in the future. Wake Owens have a fabulous opportunity to interact with the art world. This weekend, tonight, starting at the Art Center of Waco, is a new exhibit of scarves from one of my favorite contemporary artists, Kermit Oliver of Waco. Yes, absolutely. So he's a hidden gem here in Waco. Um, I actually curated this exhibit for Art Center Waco. Um, this will show Kermit's work that was like over a 30-year collaboration with Fashion House um, Hermes. Uh, he created 16 designs, and they come in all different kinds of colors, and we'll have uh, a number of them available. Actually, all the designs are represented in the show, but I have, I think, 50-ish scarves on view that have been loaned to from other Wacoans um, for this event. And we're so thrilled to have the show opening this evening at 6, so please come to the opening. It's on view until uh, October 14th um, during gallery hours, which are on our website. Kermit Oliver was a postman in Waco, had grown up in a pretty rural existence. Yes. For our listeners who might not be familiar with the story, how in the world did the 
fashion house in France, <laughs> Hermes, get connected with this Waco postman. Yes. So for uh, his early post uh, postal career, he actually worked in Houston, and he also has gallery representation in Houston. So there was that relationship. And then when um, Hermes had come to the States to um, look for an American artist to work with them on their scarves, they um, had a relationship with the Neiman Marcus family. And um, one of the Neiman Marcus um, family members knew of this artist connected through this Houston gallery. And so that's how this introduction happened. And that was in, in like the very early 80s. And then for the next 30 plus years, he created um, these 16 different designs. It's pretty incredible. Whether your interests are fine art or fashion or really naturalism in nature, there's yes. probably something to find in this Kermit exhibit. Absolutely. So if you um, have ever seen Kermit's work, um, it focuses on wildlife. Um, he grew up on a ranch in southern Texas, so a lot of the animals uh, rep and the and the nature represented in any of his work is inspired by those surroundings. He grew up around cowboy life that is often represented, especially I can think of one scarf that's called the Pony Express, which is really fun, uh, features a, a, a cowboy on his horse with some animals around. And so all of those symbolisms uh, from his paintings have been carried over into the scarf designs. Uh, Hermes did have a, a theme per, per year uh, and gave him some direction, but um, it was essentially... Uh, Americana, uh, Western life, um, uh, Native American life, uh, wildlife. So ad anything that kind of represented the Southwest. Well, I'm sure that's beautiful. I cannot wait to go check that out. As we wrap up here on the show, I did want to mention some of your personal work as a designer and an artist and update us here on the show because I know you had worked with Morgan Eyring yes. on creating these big beautiful gloves that were going to have lights in them. I believe we might call that a sconce that was going to be underneath the 35 overpass and that kind of had a, a hold put on it or was it a cancellation? Can you kind of <laughs> fill us in on, on what the issue was and yes. where we are currently? Uh, so it is still an active project. Um, so uh, we uh, it is actually, for clarification, it is not a sconce. A sconce is a wall-mounted um, light. So these are free-hanging. They're mounted to the under uh, carriage of the the highway. Um, and is this the 35 overpass at University Parks? Yes, 4th and 5th Street. Fourth and 5th so Street. Um, there's six globes uh, that will be installed. Um, we're shooting for later in August. Right now, um, they have come back to us. We had to um, strip the, the previous color um, treatments off, and we will be repainting them. So we look forward to installing later in August and celebrating that installation. And um, Morgan and I are super happy to, to move forward with this work and share it with Waco. Well, these gigantic globes is what I would call them. Yes. They look beautiful. Thank you. And they're visually stunning. And for a city that has always desired to have more of a connection between Baylor campus and the downtown area, having a really nice, beautifully lit walkway, I think is mm -hmm. going to help a lot. That was also the goal that the city put forth. I know that's a very interesting transition place, uh, especially for foot traffic and bicycle traffic. They have been putting some landscaping around there and making it a safer passageway for 
uh, Baylor visitors and staff and students to move towards uh, the downtown area. And uh, bike paths are being put around all the, all of the downtown areas also, which hopefully makes it safer for all, all of our cyclists. Last question here for you, 30 seconds. I know you've only been back in Texas for a little while and here in Waco. Mm -hmm. What's something that you've come across in Waco that has made you optimistic and grateful to be here? Um, that's a great question. Actually, the inspiration for all of our globe designs was like how Waco shows up in the world. And what I have found is uh, not only are people here super welcoming, it's really a place where you can create your own vision and become an entrepreneur. Um, learn something from the various schools that are here, and just um, make your mark. Andrea Lavalor Purvis is a designer and art business consultant. Thank you so much for coming on Downtown Depot. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Austin. Thanks again to Andrea Lavalor Purvis, Austin Hooper of AG Real Estate, and you for tuning into episode 155 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Waco Business News and join me again here on the third Friday of August for another conversation with an inspiring small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's renaissance. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.